I've been following him for days. And I know he is here. I can see the signs. Sick people have been healed. Hungry people have been fed. The people in this town aren't so angry anymore. There is peace in the streets. And there is peace in their hearts. Because they encountered him. Because he is here. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now from an off-site campus or on the internet or here in one of the venues. We're glad that you guys are along also. Y'all look good. Having a good weekend, I hope. Before I start a message, we're starting a new series called Marked, which will be an eight-week study through the book of Mark. And I want to challenge you guys, uh, if you can, to read the book of Mark during the series, kind of track along with us. Before I do that, I want to celebrate uh, new church plants. As you guys know, uh, part of our values are to plant new churches, and uh, we've been doing that. We have a church planting organization called The Ark that was birthed out of our church, and uh, we have planted 484 churches so far, and this weekend we're planting 11 brand new life-giving churches, and I want to show you where they're at. Um, In case you know somebody there, Ecclesia Church in Salisbury, North Carolina, the Hills Church in Hickory, North Carolina, Mercy City Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. How many of you know that Cornhuskers need mercy too? Uh, Believing Church in Memphis, Tennessee, down where Elvis was, Uh, 828 Church in Wilmington, North Carolina, Fellowship Church, New Roads, Louisiana, City Church, Jacksonville, Florida, Mission Church, Round Rock, Texas, which is Austin. Uh, Blueprints Church in Wellington, Florida, Church of the Hills in Nashville, Tennessee, and Heights Church in Glen Allen, Virginia. Brand new churches, 11 of them. Plus, before you applaud, let me give you one more. We are also celebrating the one-year anniversary of uh, Front Range Christian Church, which was planted by Ernest Smith, one of our uh, staff members here. And they'll celebrate one year uh, this year, and they will have over 600 people after one year, which is absolutely... Amazing. Um, Within the next month, we will plant our 500th life-giving church. This weekend, there will be well over a quarter of a million people who will worship in one of the churches that we planted. And that's kind of exciting. Let's pray for these brand new churches this week. God, we thank you for life and the life that you give. And God, today I pray through the 11 brand new churches that there will be the message of the gospel that will bring new life. Thousands will attend. Hundreds will come to know you just on this weekend. And God, we thank you for that. I ask that your spirit would move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Wow, there's so much. I wish I could tell you all about that. I was at a meeting this week. I talked for five hours. Can you imagine listening to me for five hours in one day uh, to leaders of unbelievable churches? One of them planted... Uh, a little over a year ago, 15 months ago, they now have 1,500 people every week in attendance. One has 4,000 after three years. Just unbelievable stuff going on and people coming to know Jesus. But I don't have time to talk about that. That's my other job. Okay, here we go. So as we start this week, um, marked, new series. going to study the gospel of Mark. 
Uh, I asked you in our previous series to read the Gospels. I took the Gospel Challenge. Lots of, how have you did that? How have you read through the Gospels? Yeah, hundreds of us did. And um, <laughs> what was that? There's, we did. And that's, you know, there's about 14,000, 15,000 people attend every weekend. There's just a few of them. Hundreds. I didn't exaggerate. But as you read, as you read, or when you're just reading the Bible, let me ask you this. You know, some of you read an analog Bible like this. Some of you read a digital Bible like I do most of the time uh, on your phone or whatever. How many of you, when you read the Gospels or you read the Bible, have you ever wonder if the Gospel that you're reading really bear any resemblance to the books that were written 2,000 years ago? Do you ever think about that? About 95% of us never think about it. Well, that's great. You have faith. Great faith, you're like my wife. She doesn't even think about those things. And uh, back in one of the Gospels, when Jesus was risen from the dead, um, uh, he, he went and appeared to his disciples. And at one of the meetings, Thomas wasn't there. They went and they told Thomas that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember what Thomas said? I'm not going to believe it until I see it. And because of that, he got labeled Doubting Thomas. Actually, he was a good guy. He just one time, he just he had to believe it. He's, he's, he's one of the 5%, and I'm in that 5%, unfortunately, that you got to just about see it to believe it. And Jesus said this. <clears throat> he said, blessed are those who believe and don't see. I call that the early adopter blessing. Okay? That, there is a blessing for those that have such faith that they can just get their Bible and go, I believe this is God's word, and it was written, and, it, and it's and the and same thing that was written 2,000 years ago. He said, blessed are those that believe and don't see. There, there's a, there's a, a blessing on that. But he revealed himself to Thomas and said, here it is. And so when you have questions, he's not afraid of questions. You can bring them to him. And uh, so every once in a while, when you read uh, you may wonder, is this really what was written? Or you may have flashes of doubt every once in a while because it's kind of hip and cool to doubt these days. And there are, you know, a lot of uh, self-professed atheists who are good writers who will write books about why the gospel isn't true, doesn't exist, whatever. I was reading this week about a Christian, uh, contemporary Christian band member that's been around for a long time who came out and said, I'm an atheist now, I don't believe, and it kind of sparks some doubts sometimes. You know, it, it's what I do. Is there any foundation to what I believe? Uh, there was a book a few years ago, hugely popular, The Da Vinci, da Vinci Code. Anybody read that? Lots of people did. You, maybe you went to the movie, saw Tom Hanks in, in the movie, and it really is well done. It sparked a lot of questions, a lot of questions. And in the book and in the movie, <clears throat> there is a fictional historian uh, who he uh, calls um, Sir Lee Teabing, you may remember him, who um, supposedly kind of has real insight in the Bible. And uh, Sir Lee Teabing says this, and I've, I've got it here in, in the book. He says this, he says, the Bible is a product of man, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it. Uh, as a historical record of tumultuous times, and here's the key part, and it has evolved through countless translations 
additions and revisions. He says, history has never had a definitive version of the book. And what he's saying is, is that when you sit down to read this book, there, this is probably not what was written 2,000 years ago. Let's go back and examine his statement just a minute. Uh, first of all, he says, um, the Bible is a product of man, not of God. Kind of agree with him on that. Kind of got it right, kind of, kind of not. In the sense that the Bible definitely was written by men. And it was written by men who were flawed. They were not perfect. Sometimes they didn't said things that they shouldn't have. But God spoke through them to reveal his story. And I believe that the Bible is the story of God. It's, it's uh, accurate in what, in what it reports. Uh, so it is a product of man, uh, not of God. Eh, it, it's inspired by God, okay? The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Agree with that, okay? It's not like, we found it, there it is, this is the testimony of God. No, that didn't happen. Man created it <clears throat> as a historical record of tumultuous times. Uh, kind of true. It is somewhat of a historical record of tumultuous times, but it's also the, the revelation of God. It's the story of God. It's him revealing himself, and so it's more than just a historical kind of deal. And then here's, here's one I, I don't agree with at all. And it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that when you got up this morning maybe to read your devotional, uh, what you were reading was definitely not what was written 2,000 years ago because it's the end of the evolutionary chain, what you have right now. Uh, what, what happened is they, they wrote something and then people interpreted it and then they took things out and they added things to it. And then every time there's a new translation, that translation builds on the last translation. And it adds some more things and takes things out. And so there's, there's really, there, there's, there's no way that this is what was written 2,000 years ago. And what that does is then we, we begin to think about that. And we go, well, if it's not, what, what, what is accurate, what's not accurate? And we begin to doubt whether God really said that, and we, we go all the way to doubting whether God really exists. And so, and so what, 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 why that's not true, and why I disagree with him on that, is that it's not an evolutionary process. In fact, every, every new translation of the Bible goes back to the original Greek. So it's not like they're, okay, we've got this one, and then we, they left some things out, and we got the next one. The message, if you know the, the message or the living, uh, the living Bible, uh, the, the original one, were paraphrases. They were like, okay, we're just going to read this and we'll kind of say it in a different way. Almost all the other translations of the Bible go back to the original language, the Greek of the New Testament, and they start from there. So it's not an evolutionary process in that regard. Now what I want to do for a few minutes, and this is dangerous what I'm going to do, because I may be the only person in the whole crowd that gets anything out of this. In fact, I told our team that helps me, when I told them what I was going to do in the first week of March, that I was going to dig really of March, of Mark. I was going to dig really, really deep into some historical background stuff. And one of the guys said, you know, you're about the only guy that gets excited about that. And I said, you know what? I've been here 27 years I can do it once, and if they don't like it, they'll come back the next week. So that's kind of where we are. Now, what I did is I included three things at the end 
that will be practical for everybody. The rest of it, just a few of us will like. We're, you know, we're kind of up here like this, and, and, and it'll be good. So, so but, but I want you to put your historical hat on, and I want us to examine for just a minute before we dig into Mark in future weeks, um, what would it take for us to assume that what we read is what was written? Because I think this is really important because it sets a foundation for our faith. What would, it, what would it take for us to assume that what we read is what was written 2,000 years ago? Let me give you four things, four, four reasons. I can assume that the Gospels are reliable, number one, because of their age, because of their age. We would want, if, 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 we, if we thought, okay, is this really what was written, then we would want what was written to be really old, right? Because this is 2,000 years old. Now, let me say this. There are no original copies. There aren't, like Mark, we're going to study Mark. There is not in a museum somewhere, you know, the copy of what Mark wrote. We've got, we can go to Washington, D.C., and we can see the Declaration of Independence and the signing and all that. There are none of those. It, those are called autographs. The originals are autographs. And here's why there are none of those. Because they were written on papyrus like this, okay? I ordered some papyrus so you could see what it was like. This is papyrus, and, and it's what they use for paper. And uh, it's great for calligraphy and wedding invitations and that kind of stuff, but it doesn't last too well. You know, maybe Mark wrote it, several people read it, and it got worn out. Uh, some, somebody checked it out and didn't bring it back, back to the library. You know, uh, somebody's dog ate it, kind of like homework. Uh, the kid lost breakfast on Mark. You know, there it is, and it's gone. We don't know, but we know what we don't have any original copies. So if we don't have original copies, what we would want to know is that the copies that we're working from are really old so that they're close to the events that happened. Before I get too lost in this, let me ask you this. How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Anybody heard of Alexander the Great? Okay. Do you believe he existed? I believe most that we know about him is pretty true. Okay, you studied him in school. Did you know that Alexander the Great lived, I don't know, 300 years before Jesus? Did you know that the first biography of Alexander the Great is like almost 500 years after he lived? First person that wrote his story was about 500 years after he lived, so he couldn't, couldn't talk to anybody that was alive during the time of Alexander the Great. There are four gospels, four stories of Jesus that we have that were all written between 25 and 60 years after the, the story of Jesus actually happened. So in other words, when they're writing these stories, some of the characters that were in the stories were actually alive. They interviewed them, okay? They went and talked to them. If you look at Luke chapter 1, I, I won't go through the scripture. It's on your outline sheet. Luke talks about how he wrote his gospel. He went and talked to some of the people that were actually alive. And, and, and some of them actually wrote their stuff down, but it, it didn't last because it was on papyrus. And uh, why didn't that last? And why did the gospel of Mark last, Luke last, John last? Because people would make copies of them. They say, oh, we want to pass this story on. And so they would take what Mark wrote and they would write, make, make copies. And, and here's what we have, is that we have copies of um, the New Testament writings all the way back to the earliest one is 125 A.D. So within two generations of the story actually happening, we don't have the original, but we have copies of the original. 
And usually it's little pieces like this. They'll find a little piece like this and they'll have a little bit of the gospel and, and they'll go, well, that's a copy. They have ways of dating all that. In fact, this is interesting. At least it is to me. The other day I was reading and they found a, a little piece like this of the book of Mark, the book we're going to study, from the year 90 A.D. That's the earliest anything's been found. Well, how do they know it was 90 A.D.? This is funny. How many of you know what mummies look like? You ever seen a mummy? And mummies are like paper mache. You know, I mean, the, the really important people that are gold, you know, all this. most people, mummies were like paper mache. And so somebody got the idea of pulling apart the paper mache on a mummy, and they found a piece of the book of Mark along with write other writings from the time so they know when it was. And who, who would have thought that they would have uh, mummied somebody in the gospel? You know, I, I'm sure that person had a great reward. But anyway, so, so, so our copies are old. Uh, there are other writers from the time. Josephus is one of them. He's a uh, Jewish writer. I have all of his works in my library. And um, the, uh, the earliest copy that we have of his stuff is uh, 1100 A.D., earliest copy. There are other writers that were Roman historians, and the earliest copies we have of their stuff is like 700, 800, 900 A.D. And so what we can say is the gospel's probably accurate because of its age. It passes the age test. Let me give you another one. Uh, we would want to assume that not only is it old, but that there are a number of copies. So we, we, we can assume that it's correct because of the number. There's a better chance of being accurate if we have several copies to choose from. Do you understand what I'm saying? For instance, if your Aunt Marge calls you tomorrow and says, hey, this is good news. I found a long-lost gospel in my attic, you know, and uh, how much do you think it's worth? I said, well, I don't know. What does it say? Well, it tells the story of Jesus, but it also says that Jesus was married and, um, and had four kids and 14 grandkids. You say, no, that's, that's not Jesus. That's Greg. That, that, that's not, probably not the gospel. And, um, and you've only got one copy of it, and so it probably isn't corrected. Well, in fact, that happened a lot. In fact, you can go to Barnes & Noble and you can pick up a copy of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Or every once in a while, you'll have... Um, You'll have the news flash that goes, oh, this, this, this ancient gospel, which has been around a long time and people have seen, we're just noticing today, uh, the gospel of, let's say the gospel of Thomas, and it says this, this, and this about Jesus, so um, Jesus must not have risen from the dead or whatever. And they're bogus, and they've been counted bogus for years, and how do you know they're bogus? A lot of times there's only one copy. A lot of times, um, um, they, they uh, all the time, uh, they're from hundreds of years later, and they have a name on them like Thomas or Magdalene uh, that isn't really the person that wrote it because they've been dead a long time. Why do they put names on it like that? So people will read it. It'd be like, it'd by, be like me. If I wanted a best-selling book, I wouldn't put Greg Surratt. I'd put Stephen Furtick on it. You know, and then everybody wants to buy it, you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's by Furtick or by Rick Warren or whatever. So that's how some of those came to be. So we would want a large number of copies. Now, currently, we have 5,700 documents, at least pieces of various Gospels. Uh, we also have 2,000 full copies, because they started to copy it then on, rather than um, papyrus, they started to copy it on parchment. This is parchment. I went and ordered a piece of it. This is part of a cow. 
or a sheep. It's, it's, it's much stronger, and they began to copy it, and then we found these rolls. What do we call these rolls? Scrolls. We, we would find them in caves, well-preserved, and there are 2,000 copies of the gospel in those caves, uh, to, uh, th- th- or that we have that are pretty well-preserved. Now, how does that compare with other writers of the time? It's like one writer has three. Josephus, I talked about, there are 133 copies. There are 20 times more gospel manuscripts than the average of all of the other writers of the time. So it passes the numbers test. Then the third test would be because of their accuracy. We can believe the gospels are the gospels because of their accuracy. If our old numerous copies have very few textual errors then they're pretty reliable. Think of this. Think of, your, think of your high school term paper. How many of you really enjoyed those? Anybody enjoy those? I would get mine back, and they would be marked up, circled. I mean, it just looked like, wow, everywhere. You know, spelling error, wrong word here, wrong tense, yada, yada. Looks like you copied this whole section. You know, all of that type of thing. And so you could assume that even what I wrote, that's not even a copy of what I wrote. What I wrote was not very accurate. And so, and so we would need to assume that these 2,000 copies would be fairly accurate in order for us to believe that what was written back then is what we're writing or reading today. And here's where the skeptics have a heyday. This is where they have a heyday. In fact, one uh, very well-known skeptic, his name is uh, Bart Ehrman, and he's a professor of New, Te- New Testament. He's an atheist. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. And in the book, he pointed out that in the copies that we have, these full copies, there are over 200,000 variants, errors, things like misspellings or things like words that were left out that we know that were there or even whole sections that uh, somehow didn't get in properly. And so he, he, he says this. He says there are more variants or errors in the copies of the gospel than there are words in the New Testament. You go, wow. Why did you tell me that? Well, I told you because that's actually good news. Let me tell you why. Some of you are familiar with my non-best-selling uh, book <laughs> called Irreverent. Now, um, I know exactly how many words are in here. I know exactly how many words. Because I signed a contract for 50,000 words. They wanted 75. I said 50. I got down to the end and I had about 46,000. I had to stretch. There's one whole chapter in here that's just nothing but stretch because I needed more words. There are, it's a good chapter though. There are 50,000 words in here. Now this is currently out of print. You can still get it on Kindle, but it's currently out of print. Now let's suppose that I said, I need two copies of this for my great-grandchildren, okay? And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you, would you do that? Would you take this book? You don't have to take it right now, but here's your assignment. Will you hand copy this whole thing for me, 50,000 words? Get it accurate. Would you get it right? Uh, I'll have you do the same thing. Is it okay? All right, so two books, hand copies. So these guys do hand copies, very accurate. They make one mistake for every 1,000 words. Did you get that? Do you know what that is? That's 99.9% accuracy. So one mistake per 1,000 words, 50,000 words, real quickly, you math majors, how many mistakes did they make in each book? 50. Trust me, I'm right. 50. 50 is what? 100. Two books, 100. So let's say 
hey, I've got a lot of grandkids. They may produce lots of grandchildren, great-grandchildren for me. So let's do 2,000 copies. So I recruit 2,000 of you to do copies, and I say, here's the margin of error. I want one error for every 100 words. We check it out. You do that. Uh, 50,000 words, 2,000 copies. You know how many errors that would be? Let me help you with it. 100,000, 100,000, 100,000 errors that would be. 99.9% .9 accuracy. So then I would say to you, there are more errors than there are words in my book. What do you say about that? I would say that's good news. And let me tell you why. Because if there was only one copy with 99.9% .9 errors, 50 words or 50 things that were left out, there's no way that we could figure out what I said other than kind of take it in context, right? If there are two copies, 50 errors each, they're probably most of them going to be different errors. Would you agree with that? Where they overlap, you're not going to be able to tell what I basically said. If there are 2,000 copies with 50 errors each, chances are every place that there's an error, there are going to be many copies that give you the correct ones. Think about interpreting the gospel from the originals. Because there are 2,000 errors means absolutely nothing because there were 2,000 copies. In fact, it means we're probably more accurate than if there was one copy with a few errors. Would you agree with that? So does that give you a little bit more confidence that what you was written 2,000 years ago is what you read just this morning? And then there's one more thing just for fun. Um, the, the Gospels are accurate because of their age, their number, their accuracy, and also because of their honesty, their honesty. I came to the uh, Chosen Conference, the Women's Conference, and uh, I love the Women's Conference. They let me speak every year. I don't understand that or why, but I, I like it. And um, places packed out, every seat here full and in the warehouse. Sheila Walsh was one of the speakers. Now, Sheila Walsh used to be a uh, contemporary Christian singer, author, all this kind of stuff. And so they needed publicity photos of her. So they had somebody come in and they took, you know, just a couple hour photo shoot and all this kind of stuff. And when she got the publicity photos, she was shocked. She said, they look great, but that's not me. They photoshopped them. And she said she would go to concerts and people would look at their album cover and then look at her and say, who's this woman? You know, that kind of thing. She was photoshopped and because of that, it wasn't very accurate. Now here's the good news about the Bible. It does not photoshop the lead characters. If it did, we couldn't trust it. But it keeps the, the, the stuff the same. You look at the, the disciples when you read through the Gospels, and these guys were major mess-ups. They, they misunderstood Jesus. They, over and over again, this was amazing to me, they argue about who's the greatest. And they would do it right after Jesus did a teaching on humility. You know, Jesus would do a teaching on humility. You got to, you know, you got to. And then one of them would come, great teaching, Jesus. I love that. Hey, by the way, when we get to your kingdom, can I be right next to you? You know, because I'm a humble kind of guy. You know, and Jesus would go, you don't get it. You can't do it. You can't drink the cup that I have. And then their mother would come. You know, good Jewish mother. Hey, could my boys, like, be at the front of the line, you know, when we get to the kingdom? And he'd go, did you hear my teaching on humility? Yeah, let me give you another one. And this is over and over and over. These guys are goobers, you know, over and over and over again. And, uh. And these are the founders of the church. The Bible doesn't, doesn't Photoshop it. They tell the truth. They abandon Jesus. Peter denies him three times. Even Jesus says embarrassing stuff. The book of Mark. We're going to read the book of Mark. We're going to study the book of Mark. The book of Mark, as I'm going to tell you in a few minutes, was, I'll tell you right now, was written to Gentiles. It was written so Gentiles 
could believe. Some of the Gospels are written to Jews. It's written to Gentiles, so they can believe. Now, that in mind, in Mark chapter 15, Jesus dies asking why the Father has forsaken him. Why did he say that? I, I would have photoshopped that out because that's a tough one. Th this is even tougher as far as Gentiles. In Mark chapter 7, I preached on this a few weeks ago, he calls a Gentile woman a dog. Not cool if you're trying to win over the Gentiles. I would have left that word out. I would have said he said something else. But they didn't because they wanted to be absolutely accurate. In fact, in fact, because there were people alive who went through all of this when they wrote the book, uh, if they would have been inaccurate, they would have called them on it. Hey, whoop, 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 that didn't happen. You saw a newsman just this week in our news that claimed to have gone through something and it exploded on him because people who were on the plane with him, go look it up, Google it if you don't know what it is. Uh, people that were there said, well, I was there, that didn't happen. Same thing with the Gospels. The people that are in there, a lot of them were alive when they were written and uh, they, 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 uh, they said no, or they would have uh, blown the whistle on a bad call. So, so they're honest. The Gospels are not only old, numerous, accurate, but they're honest in their portrayal of the leading characters. Hopefully that helps just a little bit in understanding or having a faith that what you're reading today is the same that was written 2,000 years ago. And oh, by the way, if it is, then we better take seriously what was written in there. Would you agree with that? Three people agree with that. But in the campuses, they're going nuts right now. So who wrote Mark? Let's get practical, and what can we learn from his story? Mark was an interpreter for the apostle Peter. Why did, why did Peter need an interpreter? Peter's this fisherman, Jewish fisherman, who grew up in Judea on the Sea of Galilee. He speaks Aramaic, which is the language of the people. After he becomes a leader of the church, he's preaching in places like Rome and these major Greek cities. He doesn't know Greek. And so he has this young guy named Mark, who knows Greek and Aramaic, who is his interpreter. And so that's who Mark is. And the book of Mark is the story of Jesus as seen through Peter's eyes. This will help it come alive to you as you read it. And I challenge you to read it while we teach on it. Because you, you look at the different gospels, you say, why are they different and all that? One of the reasons that they're unique, uniquely different is this one is, is seen through Peter's eyes. And what's, what's interesting about that, any, if, while you're reading it, you'll read a story. And anytime it mentions Peter, it gets vivid. Okay, it gets, you know, it tells all about what he's thinking and this, that, and the other. It's because it's written through his eyes. Here's another thing. Uh, the book of Matthew and Luke make Peter seem like this hero, this great man of faith. The book of Mark, which is written from his eyes, make him seem like a real goober. If you'll, you just read through it, he's never the hero of the story. Why not? Why not? Well, it could be because Mark hung around him a while and he got to know who he was. You know how that goes. But Peter actually, read, we think that Peter actually read this story before it was published. I think this, if you read 1 Peter chapter 5, he talks about the importance of humility. He said, if you're a leader, here's what you got to do. You got to understand that God exalts the humble and he resists the proud. That's one of my life verses. And so he, uh, the book of Mark exhibits the humility of Peter um, in, in, in action. Now, actually what Mark is, is a travelogue. It's, 
It's like pictures with Jesus. It's Instagrams with Jesus is what it is. Jesus goes various places. He takes a little picture. They're even not all in order. And he takes a little picture, you know, and, and it's, it, it's kind of like these, these Instagrams uh, with, 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 with Jesus. He wrote it to the Gentiles, as I said earlier. Um, uh, the, the reason it was written is because Peter would preach these sermons, which is what the book of Mark actually is. Uh, and uh, people would go, hey, I'd, I'd like, I, I can't find the podcast of that. I'd really like to have that written down. And so he wrote down the sermons of Peter. Why did he write it? So people like us can get to know Jesus. Real heavy on discipleship, it's how to be a Christ follower. With the last couple of minutes that we have, let me give you three real quick points. What can we learn from the story of Mark, from his story, the personal story? Here's the first thing. Sometimes good people make poor choices. Sometimes good people make poor choices. Any testimonies in that in, in here at all? Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe you've done something. Maybe you said something. Did something you regret. You quit on something you shouldn't have quit on. Maybe it was a job, maybe it was a friendship. Maybe it was a marriage. And maybe you find yourself marked, labeled by your mistake. She's a quitter. He's an adulterer. She's a liar. And the truth is, you're a child of God. But at some moment in time, you sinned. You made a mistake. And you may be marked by your mistake. Now, what has that got to do with the writer of Mark? Here's what we know about Mark. The first time we hear about Mark is in Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. It says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and uh, somewhere where John left them to return to Jerusalem. John, his name's John Mark. Here's what the story was. Paul, this great missionary, has a partner, Barnabas, equally great. They're partners in missions. And they go, and they're, they're on a missionary trip, and Barnabas says, could we bring my cousin, John Mark? He's a great guy. He's young, but he's enthusiastic. Can we bring him with? And he interprets, which would be good, although Paul didn't need an interpreter because he studied the various languages. But he comes along, and at a key point, he quits. He leaves. And apparently, it irritated Paul when he quit. And so his obscure place in the Bible is that of a quitter. If, if he had a hashtag, his hashtag would be marked by failure. Quitter. Quitter. The truth is, sometimes good people make poor choices. Here's the second truth. God factors in even our poor choices for his glory. That's how uh, the, the word can be true. All things work together for good because God somehow factors in even our poor choices for his glory. Um, Mark's abandonment actually caused a split between Paul and Barnabas. We find that in Acts 15. It says sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers where we'd preached the word before. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Caused John Mark, his blowing, his quitting, caused a split in a great evangelistic team. Paul felt so strongly, this guy, this guy's a loser. This guy's a quitter. I need winners on my team. 
Barnabas says, I think I see something in him, and they split. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever seen that with friends, maybe partners in business? Something comes up, they split. Even in a marriage, they split. Then you're left to go, who do I side with? What do I do? Let me give you three really quick things to do. Um, How do you handle split between friends? Don't trash them. Don't write them off. Ask God to multiply his kingdom through them. Because here's what happened with this, is the kingdom was multiplied. Now rather than one evangelistic team, there are two. Was that originally God's intent? I don't know how that works, but I do know that because of a bad move by a good guy, made a mistake, God wrote it into this story, and he multiplies the effectiveness even of our poor choices for his glory. Here's the third thing. Just because you blow it, I love this one, doesn't mean you can't have a great ending to your story. As we read on in the story of Paul, we find Paul in his later years in Rome, and he's in prison. He's getting ready to be executed. And he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, only Luke is with me, get Mark and bring him with you because he has helped me. He's helpful to me in my ministry. whole thing's turned around. Something happened in John Mark's story that turned it around. And, and, and Peter now says, bring him, I need him. John Mark becomes a travel partner to Peter. John Mark writes a significant testimony to Jesus, the book of Mark. God didn't let his mistake define him. Listen to me on this. Mistakes can define you or refine you. They can define you or refine you. It's your choice. It's your choice. Mark's story goes from hashtag marked by failure to hashtag marked by grace. Now, I told a friend this week about my idea for this this message. And uh, he said, why don't you do this? Why don't you have everybody, as they're reading the book of Mark, and we're calling it Marked and Marked by Grace, why don't you have them do, like, Instagram pictures, you know? We take Do you do Instagram pictures? This one says, where does it say it? Oh, here it is. Hashtag Marked by Grace. Let's have them take pictures and hashtag it Marked by Grace, and then we'll kind of see... What, what God's doing in people's life. I said, well, that's a good idea, and so I'm asking you to do that. I said, well, what kind of pictures would they take? And he said, I know what kind of picture I'd take. I said, what's that? He said, I'd take a picture of my daughter. I thought, your daughter? Hmm. I'm thinking there's probably a story there. Maybe, you know, um, they had a hard time having kids. Now they have kids, or maybe God's done something cool in his daughter's life. I said, why would you hashtag that marked by grace? And he said, it's nothing that you think. He said, my wife and I, before coming to Christ, becoming Christ followers, terminated several pregnancies, abortion. He said that um, when we became Christ followers, we felt regret in all of that. And sometimes, even I felt like that my life was hashtagged, marked by failure. He said, we came to Christ and we were forgiven of our mistakes, our sins. And God chose to grace us with a little girl. And every time I look at her, I think, marked by grace. I no longer feel like I'm marked for failure. I'm marked by grace. I thought, cool story. And I thought, you know, I wonder who helped him along the way because Mark didn't get there by himself. John Mark, he had a Barnabas in his life. I began to think about my Barnabas. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I went to Los Angeles My father's wife passed away. 
Uh, she was 82 years old, hero of the faith, really. And it, it was her, her funeral was just a huge celebration. It was really, really, really good. Well, at her funeral, our relatives gathered. And the older you get, the more you know that every time there's a gathering, there probably won't be the same people that are there. And some of my dad's brother and sister were there. My dad's brother, Norman, is a Barnabas to me. And I covet every moment I can spend with him. He's 82 years old. He operates on 15% of his heart, the doctors say right now. He could go at any point. So every moment with him is a treasure to me. And, and let me tell you why. When I first decided that God was calling me maybe into vocational ministry, let me explain again, vocational ministry. I mean, we're all in full-time ministry. Here at Seacoast, if you're a Christ follower, you're in full-time ministry. I'm in full-time ministry. Some of us are in vocational ministry, which just simply means I'm paid to be good, you're good for nothing. Okay, that's all that means. That's all that means. So I got a job as a youth pastor, and I got fired. I thought, well, that's their fault. I got another job as a youth pastor, and I got fired. I thought, that's their fault too. I got a third job as a youth pastor. Lasted a year. Got fired. That pastor set me down and explained how it was my fault. He said, you know what? If I was you, I would, uh, I'd get a job with Hewlett Packard where you came from. Because you're not going to make it in this. If there were hashtags back then, my life would have been hashtag mark for failure. Mark for failure. So I left, I didn't have anywhere to go, and went across country to St. Louis, Missouri, where my father was pastoring, and, you know, when when you don't have anything, you can always come home. Came home, Debbie and I and Jason by that point, and we're living in the basement of their house. Debbie's got a job as a daycare worker. I don't have a job, because my resume is not good. I still wanted to be vocational ministry, but I'm marked for failure. Tough times. My uncle believed in me. He said, I don't talk to you. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, there's this little church in the middle of Illinois, Pena, Illinois. He said, why don't you go there and preach? They need a pastor. And so I went there and I preached the weekend. Now in the denomination I was a part of, what you do is you preach your heart out on the weekend and then they'd have a vote that night. Kind of like American Idol. <laughs> Survivor, they could vote you off the island before you ever got on the island. Sometimes it looked like swamp people. But anyway, so, so nine people were there that week. Well, actually, there were 12 because Debbie and I and Jason were there. And they voted no. Hashtag marked for failure. So my uncle came to see me that week. He said, we got another place. Don't give up yet. We got another place. This place is in northern Illinois. And he said... Uh, he said, they haven't had a pastor for seven or eight months. They're desperate. And uh, he said, they'll have a little vote, but don't tell them this, but their vote means nothing because it's a district-affiliated church. We can just appoint somebody there. I'm going to appoint you, but go try to do a good job so they'll like you. And so I went. They didn't know about my resume. And they, it was a lot bigger church. They had 13 members. And 11 of them voted yes. And two of them abstained. And, uh, and, and as I was thinking about that, spent a little time with Norman this week, I thought you could argue a lot of different ways, but I think most of you would say that the hashtag on my life right now is not marked for failure. 
It's marked by grace. It's marked by grace. As I was thinking about that with you, there are some of you who have made poor choices because we all do. We all do. But some of you have gotten stuck in that poor choice. And you still see, see your Instagram as marked by failure. God sees a bigger picture. And what he wants to do is he wants to bring hope, forgiveness, new life. He wants to change the hashtag for you. He wants your hashtag to read, yeah, it used to be marked for failure, but now it's marked by grace. And so as we read the book of Mark, I want you to look at examples and look for examples in the book and also in your own life of evidence that you are marked for grace. Because I want to tell you, you are. And I want to pray for you right now, okay? Can we just bow here and in the campuses? Let me pray. God, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for the fact that you love us, you care for us. You've planned for us. Jesus died for us. And we are marked for grace. So God, I pray that with many of us today that you would begin to change the story. God, we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.